You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to get into uh, get back into our spiritual pathways that we've been talking about. And, and if you're visiting, just may come as kind of strange to you. We're going to go through three different pathways today. So we've got a lot to get through in really a short period of time. I'll do my best and see what we can do. Uh, but I want to throw this out there first. See, here's what it comes down to. A lot of people believe that in order to have a relationship with God... No, let me back up. To have a relationship with God goes far beyond having a relationship with the church. So you can come to church every Sunday and miss Jesus. I've seen people do it. I did it all. I did it half my life. Came to church... Every Sunday, every Wednesday, even on Sunday nights. And if you looked at how I lived my life, the fruit of my life clearly said, I missed Jesus. Because when a person encounters Jesus, their life isn't the same after that encounter. Well, I encountered the church. Now, they loved me and, and all those different things, not taking anything away from the church. What I'm saying is, you can, parents, you can raise your kid in the church and not raise your kid in Christ. And I know somewhere we think we can do this, but there are two different things. But you can't raise your kid in Christ and miss the church. You can't have a relationship with Jesus and miss the church. If you have a true relationship with Jesus, because Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. You can't come to me and say, Fred, I really like you, but I'm not down with Allison. Coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I really like you, but I'm not down with your bride is just absurdity. If you have a relationship with Jesus, you will come into relationship with the church. And church will mean more than just something you do on the weekends. It will mean walking with God in community with God's people. It will mean never having to walk alone. Because you'll always have God, but you'll always have His people around you on these pathways you walk. But many people will think and fall into the deception and the trap to which Jesus would say, depart from me, I do not know you, that we think we can have a relationship with Jesus because we go to church a lot. And that just isn't true. And so I just got to throw that out there as we get more into the spiritual pathways and as we get more into the spiritual practices. Because the church has fouled it up a lot. We have lived in such a way that we don't give Jesus a fair shot with people. When I uh, expressed to some of my fraternity brothers in, in, in college and some of the people I knew in college that I'd become a minister, uh, they were just, they were floored, to say the least. One girl, I saw her in Subway. She was my roommate's girlfriend. She knew us real well. I saw her in Subway in Columbus, Georgia, and she was like, hey, what are you doing? I haven't seen you years. I'm like, well, I'm in ministry. She literally fell into her seat. Like, she was literally shocked. But yet every time, every decision I made and the way I was living my life, the whole time I was talking about church and knew I went to church on Sunday no matter how hungover I was. I was at church on Wednesday no matter what I've been. I was at church. They knew that. They knew I was a church boy. And so when they found out I was a minister, like the disconnect between my life and what they thought life should be was so great that she literally fell in her chair. I say all that to say this. Learning to live the with God life becomes the single most important decision anyone ever makes. And it may mean that we have to deconstruct, tear down what we think it means to live the with God life. 
You can't walk with Jesus, genuinely walk with Jesus and miss his people. But you can walk with his people and miss Jesus. It's just very important, church. I love you too much. We love each other too much to just pretend that that's not the case. And that's what this whole series is about. Because God made you a very particular and very peculiar way. You're the only you that he made. And he wired you a very specific way to connect with him based on your personalities, based on your talents, and based on your gifts. And so if you could learn to walk primarily in that pathway, that doesn't mean you don't walk the other pathways, but if you learn to walk primarily in that pathway, you can have a full relationship with God in a way that, that you never realize. You'll have a full one just because of what Jesus has done. Let me rephrase. I mean, you'll experience him in a way that is fuller than you ever really imagined. And so don't take for granted that if you just simply read your Bible and pray, you'll have this great relationship with Jesus. You'll have a relationship with Jesus, but Jesus didn't want to come. He didn't say, I came so that you could have, you know, kind of a life. He didn't even just say in John 10, 10, that I came so that they may have life. He didn't even say that. He said, I came so that they may have life and life in its fullest. Are you living a full life? That's the question. Are you living a full life? Because Jesus came to give you a full life. Now, if you think a full life is a Mercedes and a big house then that's not the full life he's talking about. That's the full life Joel Osteen's talking about. That's not the full life Jesus is talking about. That's the full life that other people talk about, but not the one that the Bible talks about. But if full life means I have shalom, I have wholeness, I have peace, I have genuine love, I have relationships that won't leave, I have this relationship with eternal God that changes how I see the world, it means that I'm provoked by things I need to be provoked by, and I'm not provoked by the things that used to provoke me. It means my life is completely different, and I have a a certain sense of satisfaction and joy in the depths of my soul that's not determined by the money in the bank, or the rent that's due, or the relationships that are in my life. It's determined because of what Jesus has done. If, if you have that kind of life or if you're on that journey, then you are experiencing or beginning to experience the full life. That is what Jesus wants for his people. He literally serves it up to us. But what we do is we pull ourselves up to the nether table and we say, I hear that you got this full life, but I really like this side dish of life. And we go to snacking down on this side dish of life called success or called relationships or called something else. And we eat it and eat it and eat it. And then guess what happens to that dish? It runs out and then we're left with an empty plate. And then after a couple of days, our stomach's empty again. And we go pursuing the next dish. When Jesus has pulled us up to this buffet of life, and it's a buffet of life that literally never ends. It's an eternal life that literally never ends. That begins now. That we eat from and 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 eat from until finally we're with Jesus face to face in glory when he comes back again and we're no longer in desire to eat from it because we have him in his fullness. It's a life that never ends. And we choose this other life. And it's a tragedy. And we choose it because we, some of us think, we, well, just come to church and it'll all, all be good. And, you know, I watched this TV show just last night and, and they thought, well, you know, it's Thanksgiving. I'll come help the needy people and that'll make me a good person. What about the 364 other days of the year? See, because walking a pathway with God is to literally walk a pathway with God. So, think about Nicholas Herman. 
Nicholas Herman, who was born in 1614 in modern-day eastern France, he served for a short time in the army. And during one winter, he walked along the woods and discovered that his life would be changed forever. Herman looked at a barren tree, and it was stripped of leaves and fruit, and he realized that this tree was awaiting something more than what it had. That it was awaiting springtime revival and summertime abundance. A day when this barren tree would, give, would have life again and, and leaves again and bear fruit again. And so Herman, gazing at this tree, was able to grasp deeply the extravagance of God's grace. The extravagance of God's unfailing sovereignty of divine providence. And like the tree, Herman felt seemingly dead inside but he held hope that God had a life waiting for him that was much better than what he had right now. And that one day a season would come and bring his life to a place of fullness. And so at that moment, Herman said that that leafless tree first flashed upon my soul, the very fact of God. So shortly after that, an injury forced his retirement from the army and after a stint as a footman, He decided he needed to make right all that he had made wrong in his life and find a different life. And so he checked in to a monastery as a layperson. He gave himself to a monastery. And he decided that this is where he would go and he would spend the rest of his life. And he was renamed Brother Lawrence. And it was there that he discovered his contemplative pathway. So in the monastery, he was assigned kitchen duty. That was his job. Day in, day out. Wash dishes, clean tables. That's all he had to do. Grand life for old Brother Lawrence. And in this new life of washing dishes and taking care of the kitchen and the tedious chores of cooking, he developed a way to commune with God that was very real. See, Brother Lawrence learned that in the common business of life, no matter how mundane or routine, God's love could be experienced. And so he believed that the sacredness of worldly status of a task mattered less than the motivation one brought to the task. Let me repeat that. That the sacredness, the sacredness of a routine or task mattered less than the motivation one actually brought to that task. And so in some beautiful way, Brother Lawrence learned to wash dishes and cook food to the glory of God and for God himself, and in doing so, found deep within his soul a way to commune with God even as he washed the dishes. Despite his 80 years of life and his familiarity with pain and suffering, largely due to the crippling injuries experienced in war, Brother Lawrence lived with a thirst and a hunger for God that could only be satisfied by God, not in a weekly experience, but in a daily experience with God. His brother Lawrence found a way to see the world and to see his activities differently. And as a result, he began to experience God differently as he washed dishes. His brother Lawrence would have agreed with Psalm 63. He would have actually penned this psalm, perhaps. Psalm 63, if you have your Bibles, it says, God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. And my body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will praise you as long as I live at your name. And I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. 
When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I'll rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. See, this is a psalm written for all of God's people that all of God's people could, by the grace of God, if we follow close to Jesus, could one day psalm, we could one day pen it, we could one day mean it. But for Brother Lawrence, it was natural to him. And what I'd like to suggest is that for some of you, the the echo of this song is natural for you because you walk along this contemplative pathway where when you do lay down at night, you do contemplate the wonders and the beauty of God. When you do walk through the woods or when you do walk and wash dishes, you there's something about you that that longs for something more in the moment, that longs to be with God in a beautiful way. The one that walks the contemplative pathway connects to this psalm as you listen to the words because really, you're good with God in silence and solitude. Some of us aren't. Some of us need crowded room and and noise and things moving. But there are some of us who we would just be content to Wash dishes in a, in a quiet room to be with God. And if you're that person, there's a chance you walk the contemplative pathway. But see, in our culture and society, this is so opposite of how we're wired. It may be how you're wired. It may be how some of us are wired, but it's not how our society is wired. Because society values big and loud and bold. You don't want a pastor who preaches like this every day. And talks in a monotone voice where you have to listen like this for 35 minutes. It would drive you crazy and you would not come back. And we would be very small and not have a parking problem. We want boisterous. Maybe not you know, as boisterous as me, but we want boisterous and demonstrative. We want big and we want, we want much. We want a lot. But yet the contemplative is fine with simplicity. Matter of fact, the contemplative really, really lines up with Psalm 46.10, where the psalmist said, Stop your fighting and be still, and know that I am God, exalted among the nations and exalted on the earth. Many of us even here are wrestling in our spirit with anxieties and things that we're just trying to hold on to, and we're fighting and fighting and fighting. We're fighting our anger with God. We're fighting our fears. We're fighting our, our families. We're fighting the world. We're fighting, fighting, fighting. And the psalmist says, Stop your fighting and just be still for a minute. It's like when Ian goes berserk and starts having a temper tantrum, which he, you know, has regularly. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't really. He's a good kid. But when he does, when he does, and he has this temper tantrum, and he's jumping it down, and he's kicking, which drives me crazy. And I see him doing this, and I'm, like, trying to talk to him, like, calm down. I have to look and say, be still and know that I'm your father. <laughs> I should say that. <laughs> but I just say, be still. Calm down. Use your words. Use your words. And that's what God says to us. Be still. Know that I'm your father. I'm exalted above the nations. I'm I'm exalted above the whole thing. Stop your fighting. See, in the Hebrew, the word be still literally means collapse in oneself. It would be like you standing up and just collapsing. And that's the imagery the psalmist is saying. Just collapse in my arms. See, for the contemplative, this could be a very natural move for you. But for many of us, it is a struggle. See, those who walk along the contemplative pathway, you do best when there are no distractions. You do best when there are no noises. 
but you have a natural sort of dashboard light inside of your heart that goes off when you have too many distractions in your life. Because you're not built for distraction and noise and busyness and overcommitment. You're built to be still. And so for those of you who walk the contemplative pathway, I want to encourage you and I want to give you something that many of you may feel you need. Many of you who walk the contemplative pathway may need permission to follow your pathway. You may need permission because our society doesn't welcome you. And maybe even our spouses, our friendships, or relationships, or roommates don't understand you. And so I encourage you to take your pathway. See, there are some strengths to you. You who walk the contemplative pathway have a tendency to be more focused than some of us. And that's okay. We need you. You're less prone to busyness and overcommitment. And if you find yourself busy and overcommitted, then you begin to feel a sense of distraction in your soul. You begin to feel a sense of disconnection in your soul. Now, all of us can feel that way regardless of what pathway we walk. But for you especially, you just want to climb into a hole and everything becomes off for you. And you'll feel easily drained and scattered, not put together. See, you have other strengths. You're beautifully simple. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, just you just see the simplicity of things. You're kind of plain vanilla. You're kind of, it is what it is, and, and you'd be fine without all the noise and all the pomp and circumstance. Just give me a Bible quiet room and, and maybe a candle or two, and I'm good to go with God. And you have a tendency of nailing your quiet times. And if you can't nail your quiet times, you feel it more than most because you need the quiet and you need the time. You don't need much external stimulation. Some of us need to be in a crowded room, not you. See, there are some temptations for you. There's sometimes a temptation to oversimplify your faith, to remove even the beautiful things of faith, because it can be a bit noisy and distracting, and community and friendships, particularly the church, can be a bit messy. And though you'd much rather go to a monastery and check yourself in and just have the with God life, you would miss out on the people who make life complicated, diverse, messy, and at times beautiful and somewhat entertaining. And so you can't just strip it all away and think that it's going to be just fine. Because you could strip away even the honorable things. And you could even consider those things to be shallow. But yet those things are needed because you're called to walk all the pathways like the rest of us. See, there's a temptation for something called inner retreats. Those of you who walk along the contemplative pathway would be fine just to retreat to your inner world. Create your own reality and your own place and your own situations and your own scenarios and self-create these things and, and then over-individualize God and not let anybody else in and just kind of live in your own silent, quiet world. And that is a temptation because that is a great danger when we live that way. We were not wired for that either. But that is your temptation so I offer some training for those of you who walk the contemplative pathway. Make time for regular, protected, intense, undistracted times alone in silence, solitude, and meditation. Make time. And if you contemplative have roommates that are not, or you contemplative pathway walker, you have spouses that are not, then communicate this with your spouse and ask your spouse to support you in this journey. And if you're a spouse, love your spouse like the Lord loves them and support them in the journey. 
I suggest that you read other contemplatives, such as St. John of the Cross or Henry Nouwen or Thomas Merton. If you want to read them and discover who they are and what it means to live this contemplative life and this kind of walk, this pathway, then, then just see me. I've got these books. You can read them. They're, they're very, very beautiful and very deep. How many of you have ever tried to keep a journal in your Christian life? Raise your hand. How many of you have failed? Keep your hands up. That's right. See, because for those of us who don't naturally walk this pathway, keeping a journal is a pain. But for you who walk the contemplative pathway, keeping a journal could be a very natural move for you. So I invite you to keep a journal. Finally, stretch yourself in the area of relationships. Because you have this tendency to want to retreat to the inner world and strip things away. Stretch yourself with relationships that will broaden you and that will challenge you. You who walk the contemplative pathway. Raise your hand if you think you walk this pathway. You think you may. Raise your hand. Okay. Beautiful. Just sit there and be quiet. <laughs> Display. That's easy for you to do. <laughs> Henry Nouwen was a brilliant man. Henry Nouwen was a brilliant man educated by the Jesuits. He studied at one of the greatest seminaries in the world and was ordained a priest. He later studied psychology at one of the most well-known universities in the Netherlands while he served as a pastor in the minefields and he also served as a chaplain for the army while studying psychology. And then he also served as a chaplain for what was called the Holland American Line, which is where he pastored and accompanied immigrants to the United States. In 1963, Henry Nouwen graduated a psychologist. So he then applied as an ordained pastor and psychologist and was accepted into a prestigious fellowship at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas particularly in the religion and psychiatry program. He, he spent two years there from 64 to 66, and his desire was to develop clinical pastoral education and research and writing so that he could introduce a combination of psychology and theology at this institute and have it spread throughout the world. In 1966, being as intelligent as he was, a brilliant man, he was invited to the University of Notre Dame to teach psychology. And so he spent two years there where he developed these courses in pastoral theology and psychology. He wrote two books during this period. But word got out about his brilliance and his passion. And so in 1971, he was invited by Yale Divinity School to spend two year, 10 years as a professor there. And after 10 very fruitful years as a professor, in 1983, he accepted a part-time position at Harvard Divinity School as a professor there. And while he was a professor at Harvard, he crisscrossed North America and he spoke in, in places and in tours and, and looked at the conditions of Latin America. And during this time, he felt a painful disconnect from God. Though he had written almost 40 books at this time, was an ordained priest and pastor and was a professor in theology schools and some of the greatest schools in the, literally in the world and, and studied psychology under some of the greatest minds the world had to offer. He found himself radically disconnected so that he resigned from Harvard to do what seemed to be very absurd to his friends, but not the ones who knew him well. See, despite all of his success, he was unfulfilled and he was unhappy. So out of a deep desire of conviction, he left fame and he left potential fortune. He left the possibility of pastoring megachurches and left grand professorships to go pastor a different kind of community, a community called the La Arche Community of Daybreak in Toronto, Canada. See, La Arch Community was a community made up of severely disabled, mental disabled, physically disabled people. See, Henry Nouwen gave his life away to serve because that is how he was wired, even despite all of his brilliance. 
And so he lived among them, serving every day of his life as their pastor and above all as their friend. And he spent the rest of his life there until he passed away to be with the Lord in 1996. And he was buried not near Yale and not near Harvard and not in the Netherlands where he was from, but he was buried right outside of the La Arche community of Daybreak because that was his family. Those were the people he served. See, Henry Nouwen walked the serving pathway. And Henry Nouwen would have resonated with 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. He would have resonated with this, perhaps in a way greater than some of us, though this is a command written to all of us who are Christ followers. Henry Nouwen would have taken this command very, very naturally into his life, whereas some of us really would have to work for it. This is how we have come to know love, John says, that Jesus laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need but closes his eyes to this need, how can God's love reside in him? I mean, could there be a more poignant, perhaps judgmental question? Verse 18, little children... We must not love with word or speech, but with truth and action. See, for Henry Nouwen, it wasn't good enough just to teach pastoral theology and write 40 books on it. It wasn't good enough even to pastor a church. It was only good enough for him to give his life away to serve the ones in society that, they, that were deemed most useless and marginal. See, though we are all called to serve because we have been served by God in Christ, all Christ followers are called to serve. There are some of us who serve in a much more natural way. It's just, it's just something that comes much more natural to you. See, many of us, we live in a busy, busy world, and we fight the idea of serving because we live in a culture that really is at times very self-centered, and we are at times very self-centered people. And, and so the idea of taking time out of my schedule and my son's 45 athletic events that he has going on tonight and, and, and the 110 hours I need to work, so I can have the house I need to have and all the different things that, that, that may seem legit. Instead of taking time out of my schedule to come and serve somebody else, I, I, have, to, I have to really work and press and work and press. See, because what I've discovered is that those who walk along the serving pathway are modern-day prophets. I mean that in the most biblical sense. Because serving in our culture, serving others is a prophetic activity. Because it is so counterculture and so counterintuitive to the rest of our society. Like, think about it. You hear some guy who serves some guy in some city, and he gets on the newspaper. And if you don't know what a newspaper is, if you're at a certain age, that's a square piece of it. And, or he gets in the news. He gets in the news, and it's like the dude was just serving somebody. Jesus would have been like, that's, what you're, that's normal. For our culture, it's super normal. It's abnormal. It's a good Samaritan. Because serving and walking along the serving pathway becomes this prophetic activity. But for you, for you, Christian, who walks along the serving pathway, you have beautiful strengths to bring to the body of Christ. See, you're the Christian who just, you're always there. I could name a couple of them. I, I could name a couple of them. She, she's got a name, it begins with a J. She's about yay tall. Beautiful, beautiful lady in our church. Some people call her Jessie Mae. Uh, some people call her husband Larry. They are servants. 
They are servants. There are people who walk the serving pathway that they're there no matter where, what's going on. They're cleaning the kitchen. They're doing the thing. See, you as a, as a, as a Christian who, who walks along the serving pathway, you have some great strengths. You're diverse in your strengths. You're diverse because you serve God's people and God in different ways. You may serve by cleaning the dishes. You may serve by serving tables. You may serve by going to someone's home. You may serve by taking someone's communion. But you serve in these beautifully diverse ways. There's another strength that you who walk along the serving pathway have. You just do it. You don't have to be compelled to serve. You don't have to be convicted to serve. All there has to be is a sign-up sheet and you're ready to serve. And it just becomes so natural for you to show up and serve. You don't have to be asked to get there early. You're there early setting up. You don't have to be asked to stay there late. You're there late breaking down. And as a result, one of your strengths is you're just very dependable. I mean, we're doing something and and we can count on you and you and you. We know you'll be there because you really walk this pathway because you feel closest to God when you're serving others. You're the person that often sees in people that some of us cannot see or choose not to see. But see, you have some temptations, just like all of us. For those who walk along the serving pathway, you could be tempted to judge. Remember Martha and Mary? You could be tempted to judge others who just simply serve God in a way differently than you. Another temptation that you could face is Serving self by serving others. See, I've heard Christians say, well, if you help this person, it'll make you feel good. See, the tragedy of that is that's not what Jesus, that's not why Jesus asked us to help people. We're not supposed to help people because we get something out of it. We are supposed to serve people and help people because God has served us and helped us. To say it any other way just truly isn't biblical and puts me at the center of that helping when really the person I'm helping is supposed to be at the center with God right smack dab in the middle. And so for those who walk along the serving pathway, if you're not careful, you could serve self by serving others because you have maybe some esteem problems or some esteem struggles where you feel a need to serve others for self-validation. Let that not be so for you. Just be aware of these temptations. Another temptation for those who walk along the serving pathway is neglecting those closest to us. You can't serve the world and lose your family. It's not right. It's not healthy. It's not biblical. And I told you, church, two years ago when you hired me, I would not do it either. We cannot serve the world and save the world and lose our family. See, because Paul told Timothy that if anyone does not provide for his own, that is a that is his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty strong language. So fight that temptation, those of you who walk along the serving pathway and relish and bask in the beauty of your strengths. But I want to offer some training for those of you who walk along the serving pathway. Training number one, go see Dave Faith. Dave Faith knows the needs of those, especially those who are seniors in our church family. Dave is a beautiful man, and he is gifted and good and godly at what he does. His gift goes far beyond administration, though he is gifted at that. He just has a sensitivity and a desire to serve, and he does it tirelessly. He knows what's going on with the shut-ins and with the elderly. That is what God called him to do here. If you want to know how to serve and walk along this pathway, 
then walk along with Dave and ask him, who can you take communion to on a Sunday or a Monday? Or who has things around their house that needs help? Another thing you could do to train is buy or bake and give. Buy something, bake something, and give it away. Give it to your neighbors or give it to college students at William & Mary campus during finals. They'll eat anything. But just serve somebody. Serve somebody. Your neighbor or, you know, the college student. Well, the neighbor may look at you funny, but the college student would be real grateful. You just want to serve? Just go serve. Or maybe get involved in local ministries like Grove Christian Outreach, Community Action Agency, or serve the church. You know, we've been doing really well with the building cleaning thing, but guess what? We're, we're about running out of people to clean the building. We're, we're running to the end of the list. So all of you who walk the serving pathway, first thing you can do is sign up to clean the church building when you leave. All of us who don't walk along it naturally, we've got to walk it sometimes, so the best thing we can do is go sign up to clean the church building before we leave. That's one of the beautiful ways to serve. I've got to tell you, we asked you to sign this uh, clipboard for the homeless sheltering program we're doing in January. Over 82 of you signed up for the info meeting. December 2nd. So, if you signed this and didn't know that's what you were signing, that's what you were signing. That explains, that explains the, uh, the number of folks. So, December 2nd, info meeting right here immediately after second service. We're all called to serve, church, but there are just some of us who walk the serving pathway much more naturally. Finally, I want to share with you one last pathway. It's a pathway walked by a lady by the name of Arena Sindler. I owe Dave Faith. For this story, he sent me an email, I read it, it was just so powerful, I decided to study her a little bit more. See, during World War II, Arena got permission to work in the Warsaw Ghetto as a plumbing and sewer specialist. She had an ulterior motive, though. Arena smuggled Jewish infants out of the bottom of her toolbox that she carried. And then she also carried a burlap sack in the back of her truck for the larger kids. Irina kept doing, kept doing this all along, and as she did this, she kept a dog in the back. And she trained this dog to bark when the Nazi soldiers led her in and out of the ghetto. The soldiers, of course, wanted nothing to do with the dog, so they kept their distance. And then the dog's barks covered the sounds of the kids and the infants. During her time of doing this, Irina managed to smuggle out and save over 2,500 kids and infants. Ultimately, she was caught, and the Nazis broke both of her legs and arms and beat her severely. Irina kept a record of the names of all the kids she had smuggled out in a glass jar and buried it under a tree in her backyard. After the war, she desperately tried to connect all of these children with their parents just to discover most of the parents had been gassed, and most of the children had been adopted or fostered, but at least they had a chance at life because the arena walked along the activist pathway where life with God meant doing something about the brokenness in this world even if it cost her her life she died on May 12th of 2008 at the ripe age of 98 if you want to learn more about her there's a movie called The Courageous Heart of Arena Sindler put out by the quality folks at Hallmark Channel <laughs> See, Arena Sindler, <laughs> Arena Sindler would have resonated with the prophet. She would have resonated with the prophet Micah. She would have resonated with the voice of God found in the prophet Micah, Micah chapter 6. See, God puts his people on trial here. This is attorney language God uses. 
He says, now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit. You mountains and enduring foundations of the earth. So creation stands in the, in the, in the jury box. God's people are on the stand. My people, verse 3, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, proposed and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and, and what happened from the acacia grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. In other words, God is saying, remember what I've done for you. I did all of this deliverance for you. And then God turns the table and he puts on the hat of the Jewish worshiper. And he says, what should I bring before the Lord? What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings and year-old calves? Well, that's what the law prescribed. Verse 7, would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Well, that's above and beyond what the law prescribed. Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the child of my body for my own sin? Well, that's extreme. The Lord says, mankind, God has told you what is good and what does the Lord require of you. Listen, church, this is for all of us. Act or do justice. Love mercy. And walk humbly with your God. See, this is the leading charge for those who walk along the activist pathway. A people who take a look at what has been made wrong in this world. And are bent and broken until they can do something about it to help make it right. Because they understand, maybe more than some of us, that God has called us to be a people who do justice. I've said this once, I'll say it a thousand times until Jesus returns or until I die right here or somewhere else. That justice is not a political issue, it is a biblical kingdom of God issue. Justice done on social levels and legal levels. Which is why God says, man, here's what God requires of you. Do justice. Go out and make right what has been made wrong in the world. Because that's what I'm doing in Jesus. Love mercy. Not giving people what they deserve. You hear that? Not giving people what they deserve. Love withholding what they deserve. And giving them what they don't deserve. Love that. And walk humbly with God. As Christians who walk along this pathway take their cues from the prophets of old. They take their cues from the ministry of Jesus. In Proverbs 22, or better yet, Proverbs 24, it's wrong up here, verses 11 and 12. They read, rescue those being taken off to death like Irene Sindler did. And save those stumbling towards slaughter like Irene Sindler did. And if you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his word? In other words, all of God's people, all of God's people are not allowed to say, well, I didn't know what, what was so bad over in Darfur. I didn't know what was so bad over in Kenya or over in Mexico. I didn't know what was so bad over in the slums and over underneath the bridges in Williamsburg. I didn't know about that. God's people aren't allowed to say that. 
And those who walk along that activist pathway, they're the ones screaming at us sometimes. They're the ones saying, wake up. Let us move and be about the Lord's business and serving in our contemplative ways and in our intellectual ways and in creative ways. See Proverbs 31, 8 says, Speak up for those who have no voice, for the justice of all who are dispossessed. See, the one who walks along the activist pathway, this becomes the most natural path for them. So you have some strengths. One of your strengths is that you are burdened by brokenness. Suffering and injustice is never lost on these. It's never lost on you, the suffering and injustice of humanity. And you're burdened by it. You're moved and provoked by it. See, you who walk along the active pathway, you are about walking the talk. You can't just sit down and make a lot of plans and do a lot of committee meetings, go to conference after conference and committee after committee and talk about how you can help those who need help. You want to do something about it. That's a strength for you. You, you prod the rest of us along the way. You also have a tendency to inspire us, but you also have a tendency to aggravate us. You get all up in our business, try to discomfort our lives, but you inspire us to do something differently. And you're not always very popular. It didn't end well for Irina. It didn't end well for any of the prophets. It didn't even end well for Jesus himself. It may not end well for you. But by the grace of God and the power of God and the mercy of God, you find that it's worth it. The kingdom of God needs you as much as we need those who walk along the serving and contemplative ways as well. See, but you have some temptations. Perhaps one of your greatest temptations is you could have a tendency to be judgmental. You could be very judgmental, not just against the sin, but against the sinner. You could be judgmental, not just against the evil, but the evildoer. And God has very clearly proclaimed that vengeance is not ours. Jesus is a way of peace. Maturity is evidenced by eagerness to see sin leave our lives, coupled with a compassion toward those of us who sin. Self-righteous and critical attitude isn't a reflection of the compassion of Christ. So beware of your judgmentalism. See, another one of your weaknesses is heavy-heartedness. Many of you know Milton Jones, the CEO and president of Christian Relief Fund, one of my mentors and greatest friends. It is like clockwork that he gets depressed for two solid weeks after he comes back from Africa. It happens every time. When he goes to Haiti, he comes back depressed. When he goes to Liberia, he comes back depressed. Milton falls into depression every time he gets back from being buried beneath the weight of injustice in the world. He walks along the activist pathway, no doubt. So see, heavy-heartedness could be your greatest enemy, Christian, who walks this pathway. Anxiety and depression will always be on your horizon, and so you desperately need spiritual training. And you could also be preoccupied with results. You are about the fruit. And yet you have to remember that God is the one who takes care of the fruit. He's just called us to be his hands and feet. So some training for those who walk along the activist pathway. Know your city. Know the issues that plague it. Know the world and the issues that plague it. Be familiar with the systemic things going on causing the problems. And find, put yourself in a platform or allow God to put you in a platform to be able to address it in the name of Jesus. And one great thing is you must refuel in prayer. Without prayer, you will dry and die on the vine. You who walk along this pathway desperately need prayer. As Karl Barth, a great theologian, once said to his young preachers, to those who walk along the activist pathway, hold your Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. 
and go forward with the gospel. See, because there's a truth for all of us, whether we walk contemplative, whether we walk activist, or whether we walk serving, whether we walk the enthusiast, or whether we walk the intellectual pathways, is that Jesus made it very clear in his ministry that God sent Jesus to make all that had been made wrong because of sin right again. Jesus said that I had come and the Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set free the oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up what he had read in the synagogues according to Luke 4 verse 16 and he just dropped the mic and walked off stage. Because they were just left having to contemplate what he had just said. That in Jesus God was making right all that had been made wrong because of sin and disobedience and selfishness. And the gospel went forward. But see, there's also another truth about our faith, church, no matter what pathway we walk. See, Revelation 21 tells us that God will finish what he started in Jesus. See, it reads like this. When John saw the end and the new beginning, he said, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God like a bride adorned for a husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is now with humanity, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief and crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. The one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. See, when Jesus returns, He will complete what He began in His resurrection. He will bring an end to all of the things that break humanity. Sin and death and struggle and trial and anxiety and betrayal. All of those things will be finally judged in Jesus. That is what He began in the resurrection and that is what He will complete at His return. And we live as a people in light of this truth. We know what God is doing. So let us walk along our pathways with great passion and joy. With an expectancy that God will finish what he started. And what he began in me, he will bring into completion.